Hey everybody, it's Pastor Dominic from Gold Street Garden Church. We are so thankful as always to have you join us for another podcast episode. For the next few weeks, we are endeavoring to go through the book of James, which is touted by many theologians as the New Testament Proverbs. There is such a great wealth of practical application for the inward work of Christ that is found in the book of James. And we want to make sure what we believe in has breath and action in all that we do. So we know this is going to be a blessing to you. Enjoy today's message and the following messages that umbrella under this beautiful letter that James wrote to the church. The past few weeks, the Lord has truly dealt with me, and I know that this is almost, uh, I say it from a repentant heart that, you know, you just, sometimes you get really caught up in thinking the way that you need to teach or the way you need to preach. Sometimes you can become more reliant on performance than presence, uh, gifts rather than his grace. And I'm just so thankful that this is enough, this book right here. Obviously the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit, but between the Holy Spirit who wrote this book that comes to dwell in us when we become born again, the Lord is bringing me back to a place where this is all I want. I actually don't even like, I'm not saying it's bad to read additional resources, but I'm just at such a place where this is all I want. I wanna hear what God is saying now through his word because he, he gave us this book. If you ever did a study on the canonization of the Bible, you have to understand that these words, these words have been preserved for centuries and it's the oldest proven documents from Isaiah and it, like they were, they were, res- preserved in caves over in the Middle East perfectly when they found large scrolls from Isaiah. And why would somebody go through so much to make sure that these words would be preserved? And there's a scripture that tells us that it says God watches over his word. And he's been watching over his word, making sure that it would be passed down from generation to generation. And around the world right now, which I know even Javin and Kayla could speak to, there's, there's, there's places in the world where we're blessed to have our Bible on our phones. We're blessed to have, uh, you know, I, I'm so thankful. I go in my office and I have four Bibles just laid out on my desk in different translations and studies just waiting to read. But in some countries, in some places, they don't have anything but a little page And they'll all just read it, believing there's life in it, believing that it'll transform them. And in America, a bunch of people show up in a room and say, entertain me. Not realizing that we have access to the greatest document of eternity. And it's a living word. And I say all that because The Lord is just reviving me of 
And I'm not saying that we won't have topical nights again, like where it's the Lord breathes upon a, a topic and we, we minister on that. But I hope you're okay with this because the Holy Spirit is leading me to do it. But I want to start just reading books of the Bible together and let the Holy Spirit preach to us what each line is saying, what, 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 what the Bible is saying. And as the Holy Spirit ministers while we're reading the scriptures, then we'll elaborate in that moment. But to just get up here and say, you know what? I think we just need to minister on prosperity or I think we need to minister on you know, this aspect. I'm just at a place where this word is eternal and it says something new but the same to each generation. And that the generation that read a passage before, it'll read, it's the same Jesus, but it's a, a, a specific thing that we need to know in this hour, in this generation. So I want to read one passage before I introduce us to the book that we're going to focus on the next few weeks. And I believe we will be doing this for until the Lord says otherwise. And I'm excited about it, and I hope you are too, because there's too many believers that have no clue what this book says. They have no clue, but yet they are professionals at telling other people what the Christian faith is about on Facebook and Instagram. And they can quote more song lyrics from Christian songs than they can the Bible itself. And I, I want to make sure that we're, we're in this book and we're, we're really getting it in our hearts. So I want to go to 2 Timothy first. And if you go to chapter 3, and we've been in 2 Timothy a lot lately as a body, but just so everybody understands, 2 Timothy was Paul's very last letter. And he was writing to Timothy, who was a pastor. So as you would know, with, with my wife and I pastoring a flock, pastoring, I take these seriously. That it, it, it real, Paul is speaking to a young man in the faith, telling him how to run God's church and not to allow people to run the church, but to allow God to run the church. When we started Gold Street Garden, I had one question the Lord kept putting in my heart. How do we build a church that caters to God first, not people? And that's the big problem we see in culture is church is all about what do the people want? Do you know what that reminds me of? There's a story, I'm going to get off, but I'll come back, I'll come back. Exodus 32. If you're not familiar, Moses goes up a mountain for 40 days, 40 nights, and the Lord gives him the law, the Ten Commandments, gives him, as he's up on this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, all the Israelites are down at the bottom of the mountain because they were too scared to talk with God. They just said, Moses, you go talk to him because we're scared of him. So Moses became a mediator, a, a foreshadow of Jesus, okay? 
in Exodus 32. So Moses goes up this mountain and he's fellowshipping with God, getting the 10 commandments, getting the law. And you know what happens is all of a sudden God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. In the middle of them fellowshipping, Moses and God are on the mountain and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to wipe all of them out. I'm going to start over and I'm going to use you. And you know, Moses doesn't know what's going on down below, but God does. And you know what happens to be going on down below is that Aaron, who is a symbolic nature of a priest, a, a pastor, you could say, a priest, he's down at the bottom of the mountain and all the people are growing weary because Moses has not come back. He's been up there for 40 days. And they're like, Aaron, what has become of Moses? We need a God to worship. Make us a God. Why am I saying this? Because what are we just talking about? A church that caters to God or to people. So watch this. Aaron starting to feel the pressure from the people saying they need something to worship. You know what Aaron does? He doesn't say, stop, Moses will be back soon. He falls for it and he, he says, everybody go grab golden earrings from your family and bring it to me. So he's trying to come up with the best idea. He's trying to figure out, well, what do they think is valuable? They think jewelry is valuable. So maybe if I get what they think is valuable and then he puts it in a fire to refine it and then he takes a tool and he makes a calf a golden calf, and all the people begin to worship the calf. We, we laugh at that, like how could they do that? But what is really happening is this is happening in America all over. Pastor, we want more programs. Pastor, we don't do enough of this. It's too cold, it's too hot. We need more chairs, we need, we need this, we need this. We want something we can worship. This isn't relevant enough. That, that, that hurts my feelings when you talk about homosexuality. No, you shouldn't talk about those things. Give us something to worship. Give us something to worship. And God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. Moses doesn't know what's going on. And you know what? That's symbolic. Follow me here. This is so special. Moses doesn't know what's going on, and he's a foreshadow of Jesus. Watch this. Moses begins to intercede for the people because he doesn't know what they're doing. Please follow me. So he begins to say, God, you brought them out of Egypt. They're your people. And if, you're, if you wipe them out, it'll ruin your name. It'll ruin all these things. And God says, you're right. I'm not going to wipe them out. But here's the thing. The reason why Moses didn't know what was going on is because he's a foreshadow of Jesus. And Jesus says that I don't remember your sins no more. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. So the reason he was able to intercede was because he had no clue of what the sin was. That when Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you and me, he doesn't see the sin because he's already decided to be clueless of it even though he could have a clue. Because when Moses, the man, came down, he threw the stuff and got all upset. 
because that was symbolic nature that when Christ returns, wrath is going to come. But while he is still up on the mountain, he's interceding for the people even in their sin. That might have been deeper than you caught, but I hope that you see it. So, 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16, says this. All scripture, everybody say all scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Do we believe that? I want to further go on here in chapter 4. Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Everyone say, preach the word. Preach your favorite thing you want to talk about. Preach what's going on on the news. Preach on eschatology all the time. Preach on, on this and preach on that. Or does it say preach the word? It doesn't say recite the word. It doesn't say just, just teach the word only. Preach means that somebody's got to get up with some conviction of the Holy Spirit and say, there's power when somebody preaches the word because when you begin to preach the word, all of a sudden the demons take notice that somebody believes this thing. And I'm not talking about volume. I'm not saying preaching is volume. Preaching is conviction. Preaching is saying that when I read this and I see the world, that I'm seeing the world go such a bad path that all of a sudden the sirens go off inside of me. And I say, this says if you keep going that way, that it leads to destruction but if I get up here and tell you that he made a way and that he's holding back judgment on you and you have a moment right now in time to give your life to Jesus and there's a conviction that rises up but we don't see that right now and a lot of people unfortunately we see a lot of people cowarding to the to the the political opinions to the agendas of man and the devil's got preachers if you want, I'm going to quotation mark preachers wrapped around his finger saying what he wants them to say, not saying what needs to be said. And I'm not talking about getting up here and just saying things to make people mad. No, but if the word, I, I heard this a long time ago, it always said, if you're going to offend somebody, don't let your presentation offend them. Let the word offend them. Don't try to make people offended. Just preach the word. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Why would he say that? Because there's times that you preach the word and everybody will yell amen. But there may be times you preach the word and they may say you're going to prison. Is it, is it the same? Because it's, it's easy to hoot and holler in a Pentecostal church when everybody's excited. In fact, anybody can be bold in that environment. In fact, it's easy to get religious in that environment because it becomes emotionalism. There's no power in emotionalism. There's, there's true conviction in preaching the word in season and out of season. 
I can honestly tell you that the, the times that the power, I've seen the power of God flow the purest through my life is in the moments I didn't think it could. The moments where I felt beat up, where I felt like I had even maybe failed God in certain arenas. And all of a sudden, somebody comes into my path and like the pure word of God starts flowing out of my, or there's been times I got up here to preach and I, you could ask my wife that she wasn't even sure I shouldn't minister that night based off some of my, my thought patterns, just kind of like being a little bit discouraged, but I knew what I needed to do. I knew that, that when you don't feel like reading the Bible, you need to read it. When you don't feel like going to church, tell the whole family, get in the car now because I have a date with God. The devil's trying to talk me out of it. When you don't feel like praising, it's time to open your mouth and say, shout to the Lord. When you, when, when, when you feel like it's not the right time to step out in faith, take a huge leap. You have to. You have to get convicted about this thing because if not, you will, you will coward and you will fall to the fear of man. It only takes one day to backslide. It only takes one day to backslide. That's why people in this room know that I am a Holy Ghost harasser. If I don't see you, I will harass you. Holy Ghost style. Because, and, what, and I, I know I'm being facetious, but when it comes to, he's so close, he's so near, and the devil wants to do anything he can to make you procrastinate. Procrastination reveals you have more faith in time than you do God. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. We talked about that last week, right? You can just go on YouTube and type in, this is what I believe, and then you'll find some whack job. <laughs> this is for real, that there is so much stuff out there right now that is so demonic, but because people feel entitled to, they worship their feelings, and when they worship their feelings, the enemy begins to pull the strings of their hearts and they gravitate towards what makes them comfortable instead of, and we're going, this is gonna take us perfectly where we need to go tonight. But according to their own desires, they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from what? The truth. They will turn their ears away from the truth. What sets you free? The truth sets you free. So what does the enemy want more than anything? You to not listen to the truth, to you to not hear the truth, to you to hear watered down messages that have nothing to do with the word of God, but just some man-made motivational speech to try to keep butts in seats. When Jesus preached the truth, people walked away. 
the price of truth is a narrow path. Do you realize that even this moment right now, this is an eternal moment, that there might be somebody in the room that their eternity hangs in the balance right now. Somebody's eternity hangs in the balance. We can't treat church as just a cute social thing or just a cute, like there has to be a reverence, a reverence for his presence. But you, be watchful in all things. They turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul then goes on to say, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There are people that will not love Jesus' appearing. Because he's either coming back as your bridegroom or as you're the judge of wrath. And we're all going to be judged, the Bible says, but he, yeah. he's either going to be, you're gonna be judged through the blood of Jesus, or you're gonna be judged without no Jesus standing between you and the wrath of God. This is real, and we don't hear about it enough, but that doesn't mean that it just somehow fell out of the Bible. Amen? So turn with me to the book of James. I want to go through the book of James, and I know we took our liberty to prepare this, but the book of James is known by some as the, the New Testament Proverbs, and Proverbs are a book of wisdom. James is, is, is known as the New Testament Proverbs, a book of wisdom. Some of you may have not have known this, but based off a lot of discovery that the book of James, the letter of James, was one of, if not the first, writing of the New Testament. You wouldn't know that because it's, it's kind of at the back of the New Testament, but it was actually one of the first penned letters to the church. And if you've ever heard of Martin Luther before, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther with the reformation of the pulling away from the Catholic church, one of the things with Martin Luther is he actually despised the book of James. I don't know if you knew that. He, wanted to, he actually fought to take it out of the Bible because James makes a statement that faith without works is dead. And people thought that James was warring with Paul because Paul was very much against works having anything to do with salvation. But 
I want you all to know that James and Paul were very close and they did not combat, they complimented. That Paul was saying that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, saying that we are justified by God, that there's nothing we can do to earn that. But James says the only way we know that something really took place in your heart among each other is if you are acting out what has taken place on the inside of you. To try to argue with that is asinine. But that's what happens when you get into a hyper grace mentality that you feel like you can do whatever you want and you can live any way you want. I want you to know you are open to a very sad reality. There are so many warning verses that say if you practice unrighteousness, immorality, homosexuality, you practice that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I wanna be clear on that. And the reason I wanna be clear is because if I'm not clear, I'm not loving. That's where we don't get it. You're, that's hate speech. No, that's love at its greatest measurement. You are heading down a bad path. I was too. We don't have to weigh which sin is the worst. All of it leads to destruction. So James, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they have, it is very much well proved that James is the half, the, the writer of this letter is the half brother of Jesus. You know what's crazy about that? How many people could imagine having Jesus as your literal brother? <laughs> Just think about that for a second. Just think about the pressure of that as a sibling. <laughs> Jesus did it. No, he didn't. He's perfect. <laughs> Don't you dare say that. Mary, you know, you know, like so much pressure. He's perfect, perfect. The reason I, I, I bring that up is because the Bible documents in John chapter seven, verses three through five, James is mentioned, the half-brother Jesus is mentioned in Galatians, Corinthians, the book of Acts, but he, he's a, a, a father, an elder in the faith post the resurrection of Christ. But before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, James, his half-brother, never believed in him. Why is this important before we read this? Because I have news for family in the house that are believing for, for lost loved ones, believing for people to come to the Lord, that Jesus was born into a family on purpose. Everything was detailed. He was the elder brother. We find out in Hebrews that Jesus is our elder brother representing us. But all the way back through, once Adam and Eve sinned, each generation, there was wars with family. What, what happens right after Adam and Eve? Cain kills his brother Abel, right? Then you go down, generate Noah, Noah's sons, they have wars, they, they don't get along. Then you get to Isaac and Ishmael, they have wars. Then you get to, you get to uh, Jacob and Esau having wars. And then you get to uh, Jacob's sons and Joseph. They throw them into a pit. David and his brothers. There was always war with family. Why is there so much war with family? Because the family at its core roots represents God. So the devil attacks family 
to pervert the image of God. So Jesus was born into a human family. We know that he had to come as a human to be the perfect sacrifice, but everything is detailed with God. And him coming that his own family, his own brothers couldn't see him as Lord because all they chose to do was see him through the world familiar lens. This happens all the time. That there's people in this room that You've been transformed since God's come into your heart and some of your family still thinks it's a hoax, still thinks you're brainwashed, still thinks it's not this. But you see, Jesus shows us something that he didn't force his family to believe in him. He never did. He realized that there had to be a work that was done in him and that when God did that work in him all the way to the death, that it awoke his whole family to see that I want people in this room to know that you might be saying, why isn't my family coming to the Lord? There's a work God is doing in you that when you focus on what he's doing, and this is this, I'm, I'm setting this book up for you to understand James's heart that how, could, could you imagine how embarrassing that was? The half brother of Jesus to not realize who he was until he rose from the grave. You grew up with him. You, you heard him and you saw these disciples follow him everywhere and you just chose to stand back and just say, that's not real. So the conviction he has now when he writes is so important. The work that we allow God to do in us is of greater value than the work we accomplish for him. There's a work that he wants to do in us, but a lot of times we're more focused on the work we're trying to do for God, not realizing what he wants to do in us. Until you realize there's a greater purpose that God, God has a greater purpose that he's trying to do in you and until you realize that greater purpose, you'll always forfeit the process. If you don't see the purpose of what he's trying to do on the inside of us. We said this a few weeks ago that Jesus didn't come to the earth to fix everything around us, he came to fix everything on the inside of us. So, Let's start. <laughs> You're like, what, what, this, is, this guy. No, I'm saying that. James chapter one, verse one. <laughs> James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you're gonna think this is, uh, we have to stop right away. <laughs> I, I wanna show you something though. When you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, this is how magnificent his word is, that you can miss so much. If I just told you that James is the half-brother of Jesus. 
I don't know about you, but if I had that type of street cred, if I was the half-brother of Jesus, and I was starting to write a letter to tell everybody, I would be like, this is James, major parentheses, half-brother of Jesus. Why doesn't he say he's the half-brother of Jesus? Because being the half-brother of Jesus in the flesh didn't change him. Being a bondservant of Christ changed him. There's too many people that want recognition with man instead of relationship with God. That people find their value in being recognized by people instead of just simply being in a relationship with him and love. And that's why a bond servant in the Greek, just so you all know, that the radical definition is to give oneself completely to another's will. James, the one who gives himself completely to the will of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. When he says the 12 tribes that are scattered, you have to realize that when the church started, they were being persecuted heavily. People were being stoned to death. They were being hung and burnt at the stake. They were being imprisoned, beaten, and threatened. It was not like, oh, here's a nice building. Let's all start a, a, a fund and get this building and we'll all worship here. No. James is writing to a, a whole group of believers that are all scattered around and they're running for their lives. They're starting, to, they're starting to question, is this real? Is this worth it? Is this worth us putting our families at risk to believe this thing? And James, who didn't believe in Jesus, his own brother who has now seen the resurrected Christ and believes, he's saying, I'm talking to you and he's saying greetings to all of you that are scattered all over that are running for your lives that aren't sure if this is real remember even when John the Baptist got imprisoned by Herod and he sent he, he told his disciples go ask Jesus if he's really if he really is the one because once he got in prison he was starting to wonder his mind started to wonder is 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 he really the one? Am I really giving my life for, for this? This was real decisions that had to be made. This was not just a, this was real life. And James is writing to a bunch of people that are scared, that are wondering about their faith. And this is what he says. He opens it up with this. My brethren, which means he is not talking to unbelievers. This is important when you read scripture. He's saying, my brethren. Once again, he was the half-brother of Jesus, but he didn't say, he's saying, my brethren. Here, count it all joy 
when you fall into various trials. Rewind. My brethren, count it all joy if you fall. No. <laughs> Wish it was that simple. Count it all joy. Live in life, live in life. Fall. Trial. Who's he speaking to? People that are finding out their friends and their peers are being crucified, being beaten, being imprisoned, and they're running for their lives. And he's saying, count this all joy. What do you mean count this all joy, James? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Let me tell you, when he's saying to count it all joy, you know what the Bible says in Psalm 100 verse four? It says, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. That we thank him for, is it, why would I bring that up? Because the Bible says in Psalm 1611, that in his presence is the fullness of what? Joy. So when we praise him and we thank him, we enter his presence where the fullness of joy is. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But then it goes on in Nehemiah 8.10. It says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Which means that in his presence, we find our strength. And then in Hebrews 12.2, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That Jesus counted it joy, and he was able to endure. There are people in this room that are begging God for deliverance when they should be asking God for strength to endure. Because when you endure, you get to experience his presence in a way you never have before. We got a camp here. Count it all joy. What is James saying? Count a trial as an opportunity to experience his presence. That soon as things get crazy and it starts seeming like family members are turning on you and it starts seeming like there's a hardship going on. I, Lord, I know that you can deliver, but but I want you to know that if I can experience your presence in a way that is more deeper, that is greater, I count it an honor. I count it a joy to know you. That this life, that this life is but a vapor. That in heaven, there will not be trials. But right now, a trial is an opportunity to say, Jesus, I want to experience your strength. Because it says in Psalm 27, verse 1, it says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's our strength. He's our strength, so we count it joy when we fall into various trials because a trial is just like a courtroom that when you count it all joy, the verdict will always be Jesus is Lord. The trials, you see, the, a trial, the enemy enters the courtroom and he says, well, a little pressure 
Well, a little pressure caused them to buckle. But joy is a weapon. Count it all joy. What did Jesus say? Before you build, you better count the cost. Joe was talking about David earlier. You know, right before David's about to take Goliath on, he finds out that there's a reward. I don't know if you remember. He found out that he starts hearing the soldiers say, hey, yeah, whoever takes Goliath down doesn't have to pay taxes anymore and gets the king's daughter. You know what David said? He said, come again. <laughs> Tell me about that reward. It, you find it in scripture. He asked multiple times for it to be repeated. Do you know why? Because David chose to meditate on the covenant, not the conflict. He wanted to hear the reward because the joy, the joy of the reward outweighed the price tag. It outweighed what was going on. I want to encourage you all tonight to count it all joy. Can you say that out loud? Now, I want to apologize in advance that since we are talking about this tonight, this week, you're going to have to count it all joy. And once again, God, he delivers. But let's keep reading. Verse three. <laughs> you know what's so amazing about this? This takes the pressure off trying to be 10 points. Through the, what does God say? What does he say? Because the spirit knows how to preach. Verse three. Knowing, so first off, you have to count it on joy. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now that's not what I wanna hear. That's not what my flesh wants to hear. I wanna hear that the testing of my faith produces great tangible results that I can shout hallelujah over. There's a deeper work God wants to do in you. You know why? Because God's preparing a bride for his son not a spoiled girlfriend. He's preparing a bride and nobody wants to marry somebody that runs when it gets hard. Nobody wants to marry somebody that buckles when a little argument happens or when something gets a little. God is looking for a bride that is willing to stand and say, I don't care what goes on. I count it all joy. Knowing that the testing, knowing that the testing of my faith is going to produce patience. And what is patience? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, when he tells us what love is, you know, the very first thing he says love is, he says, love is patient. So when we read this again, you could read it as knowing that the testing of your faith produces the maturity of love. Yeah. 
because you're only willing to wait for those you love. So when he sees his bride, that no matter what comes at them, says they continue to count it all joy, he starts seeing his reflection. He starts seeing the bride. And I believe the more he sees his bride, the more he wants to pull the skies open because he sees the love. He sees it touches him in such a beautiful way. But the testing of our faith produces patience. And Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 tells us, it says, don't be sluggard, don't be lazy. But it says that imitate those that have gone before you that through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. Faith is a glamorous word. Faith is a word that everybody gets excited about, wants to hear a lot of teaching on. But James is telling us that there, there's a deeper work, that faith is the initiation, and that's what we live by. We live by faith. The Bible says we live by faith. But patience is the backbone of faith. Patience is when you're willing to stay when everybody leaves. That says something. There's people in this room that you, you, could, there might be, you might be able to look around the room and here, I know I can, I can look around the room and I can see people, obviously my wife, but I, I even see other friends that, that have been with me and my family through the thick and the thin, that have, have believed certain things and have said, you know what, I see that things are crazy, but I see something that God is doing. And they're the type of people you want to run with. You don't want to run with the type of people you have to constantly accommodate. And so quickly we think that that, if we treat people like that, we'll start to think that's how God is. But that's why you got to read this book. Remember we said last week, when we get to heaven, God's not going to be the God we thought he was. He's going to be the God he said he was. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, the, the maturity of love. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What a statement. I don't know about you, but like when I read a verse like that, I'm like, Lord, I, 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 this is, this, I'm being I'm just my humble like commentary. When I read a verse like that, I'm like, I feel like all my problems would be solved if I get that. Have you ever felt that way before? Like you read a verse and you're like perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Sign me up. Like, Lord, what am I not getting here? That's how your heart should be right now. You should be saying like, okay, if I learn to let patience have its perfect work in me, if I begin to, to learn to wait in his presence, if I begin to learn to endure afflictions and endure different things going on in my life, just like Jesus, it says that the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That's crazy. He endured the cross. And once again, we th when we think of the cross, and we'll get into this as, you know, one day, and as we go in the book of James, but the, when Jesus... With, with Jesus and the cross, you have to understand that the cross 
wasn't the most horrific thing about the sacrifice. There was a moment on the cross where God said, or where Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had always called him father, but when he became sin, the father turned his back on his son. It was the first moment in all of eternity that they had to experience separation. And they experienced separation so that way we would never be separated. This is the gospel that God unleashed all of his wrath on his son, Jesus. For every sin you've ever committed, every lie you've told, every bad motive, everything, he unleashed it on Jesus. Wrath everywhere, beard being pulled, crown of thorns, and just being, every part of his body, they said they couldn't even recognize him as a man because, you know why they couldn't recognize him as a man? Because, because man, man's image had become so deformed by sin that it had to be punished to be deformed of even visuals of, of a man so that we could be created brand new. Everything was down to the detail and he endured that. He was patient through it for us, for the joy set before him, the glory in his presence that we may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. A few quotes that I wanted to share as I was reflecting on this was, your ability to wait reveals the maturity of your faith. Your ability to wait reveals the maturity of your faith. Also, what we value will determine what we endure. What we value will determine what we endure. The greatest example of that is, is relationship. My wife and I, if we get into a dispute, I'm going to endure that dispute to find a resolution. If a stranger and I get into a dispute, I'm gonna to try to find peace in that moment, but because my value with my relationship with my wife, I'm gonna endure way more than I would with an altercation with somebody that I don't really know. Not to say I'm not gonna seek peace in that moment, but you're willing to endure for what you value. So it's the same thing, and you know, that's why even a nice restaurant, people are willing to wait, but if you drive by a Burger King and you see 10 cars in the parking lot, you're like, forget that. It's not worth it. It's not even worth it for one car, but, just, but, uh, but, but what, I'm, what I'm saying is what you're willing to endure, a practical example. Now, I don't ever want anybody to mistake what faith is. Faith is believing God at his word, believing that it's the final authority revealing the character of God. I like to, I like to say that faith is being fully persuaded that God is who he says he is. That you just, you read it, you believe it, and even the things you don't like, you ask the Lord to help you to understand and to see clear. 
I've made the mistake multiple times and the Lord's still working on me where I hear a certain viewpoint of God that I really like and I try to fit it into everything about God. And then all of a sudden I'm trying to fit a square into a circle. I'm trying to fit, I'm trying to force theology instead of allowing his, his word to breathe on my heart and not just allow me to interpret God the way I want to, but the way he desires to be revealed. We said this a while ago, but God doesn't desire to be understood. He desires to be known. And there's a very big difference between that. He wants us to, to, to long to know him more. And so right after that, in verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is very intriguing to me because I, I always tell people that, you know, when you really believe in God for an answer, maybe like an acceleration in a business idea or uh, trying to just figure out how to fast track a particular assignment, you know, I always pray with people, let's ask the Lord for wisdom and he'll give us wisdom. And I do believe that that is a fair way to pray and to go about, but isn't it amazing that the context of this scripture, that it's saying that when you are going through crazy situations in life, that when you fall into a trial, that let faith have its perfect work in you, that you, know, you will produce patience and then patience having this work. And it says that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Like it just kind of throws it in there that, that God is it's almost like God is saying through the scriptures, instead of you just asking for an escape plan, ask me how to operate and what's going on right now. Ask me how you can shine in the middle of darkness. Ask me for wisdom on how to be unmovable when everything around me is moving. It's, it's a great example of this is if a, a a husband and a wife, say they split up. They're not getting a divorce, but they, they split up. And the husband is off and all he's doing is saying, Lord, bring my wife back. Lord, bring my wife back. Wouldn't that be the prayer? And I, I've heard this a lot and different that, Lord, bring my wife back, bring my wife back. Instead of saying, Lord, give me wisdom to be a better husband. Do you see the difference? I'm giving you an example, but that we don't realize how quickly we do this in life. Like, 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 Lord, like we'll say, Lord, get me out of this situation. Lord, get me out of this instead of Lord, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. So that way I can know your, remember we read it earlier. Moses knew the ways of God, but the Israelites only knew the deeds. When we ask for wisdom, we're asking God, what would you think? What would, how, how would Jesus express himself in this moment? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't ask to be delivered from the fire and God revealed himself in the fire. Amen. Daniel in the lion's den, he wasn't delivered from the lion's den, but the lion didn't touch him. And the Bible says in Isaiah that heaven on earth or it says that in heaven, what does it say? That the lion will lay with the lamb or, or it'll lay with the goat. It, it, and 
Daniel manifested heaven on earth in his situation because the lion laid with the lamb. That the, uh, the greatest opportunities we have to experience the presence of God are actually in the moments that you feel the most uncomfortable. The moments that you don't like the most, that's where God is saying, I want to show you that I can fill every need. But our mind says that, our minds try to convince us that this can only be good if I'm out of this situation, but God is trying to say, I'm good no matter what is going on. And as we tap into that reality, we will manifest that reality and we will begin to push darkness away, but we try to do it the opposite way God wants to, and then we cause things to stay longer than they need to. We begin to have self-inflicted wounds because you allowed the devil to turn the trial into you being guilty instead of a moment for him to be glorified. And in closing, it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I've heard so much teaching on this verse about asking God in faith. And sometimes I really feel like a lot of people treat faith as a lever to get God to do whatever you want him to do. And once again, when you read this passage, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about when he actually uses the term double-minded, that was a term, terminology that was used often for followers of Christ who were mixing the pagan religions with Christ because they, they, were, they weren't so sure about their faith anymore. So they started beginning to worship pagan gods again and mixing it in just to see if it would work because they were losing patience. So when he says, don't be double-minded, ask in faith, he's saying that faith, that this is the, the lifeblood of your relationship with God, and don't you dare contaminate your relationship with God with the ways of the world. Don't you dare allow what other people say is a, a good way of of getting out of this situation and just listening to topical studies from the world or self-help books. We're going to get into it more next week. How many people are thankful that we're going to go through the Bible? I'm excited. I encourage you. Be with us. I, I, just being real, did somebody, is there people here tonight that saw things in the book of James in just eight verses they never seen before? Eight verses. Eight verses. And I guarantee you, if I read it all again, we'd get something even greater out of it. Those eight verses. His word is inexhaustible. Another reason I'm doing this is because I want you to love to read the word. I, I'm believing by the, the grace of God that as I preach the word, that the same love that I'm being filled with in the secret place would just spill over on you. And when you read the word, 
that you'll be like, he is enough. That, wow, this is so beautiful. And I, I encourage you, the way that I love to study the word of God, this is, I, I, uh, I shared this a, a while ago, but I, it, it bears repeating. Can we as a body, can we all read the book of James as much as we can while we're going through it together. So everybody read the book of James, get it in your heart because what'll happen is that when it's ministering things that God was speaking to you during the week, you'll come and the Holy Spirit will confirm through his word what is being spoken and what is being said. And the way that I like to have conversation with God is, and I challenge you with this, if you're having a hard time reading the word of God, like say, Let's just be real. There's people in this room that when they start to read the word, they just fall asleep. Or, or they, they, they just, they feel like when they read it, they go through seasons where they feel like they don't get anything out of it. Like, I just feel like I, they almost feel like they wasted their time. And as soon as you start feeling like you're wasting your time, you're not going to do it. You'd rather do something that entertains you or scroll on Facebook or go to Netflix or whatever. But when you realize the word of God is alive, this is a beautiful little way. Read a chapter of the Bible and soon as a verse flickers, it might be two verses, but soon as a verse flickers to you, it's almost like it, it jumped off the page. Like you keep reading, but you, you keep like that one verse. That's God speaking to you. And what you need to do, you need to show him that you hear him. So what you do is you write that verse out verbatim in your notebook or on a piece of paper. You wrote that, you write it out. And as soon as you write it out, you say, God, what are you speaking to me? And soon as, soon as you take a moment to be silent, write out what that verse means to you in that moment. That's having conversation with God. That's praying. That's, that's interactive reading. That's saying, God, you're alive. I'm not just reading a book, but I'm talking to the author of eternity. He's coming back soon. And if Gold Street Garden perspective what, what's going on in the body of Christ I have to be responsible for what goes on in this house and in this body and all I can say is that I refuse to shepherd a flock under shepherd a flock that doesn't love his word and doesn't that 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 that's good enough that you don't need an entertain entertaining message you don't need all the things that his word is enough in the spirit of God